0: Hey there everyone, from beautiful Fort Collins, Colorado, halfway between Cheyenne and Denver, and 5,003 feet above sea level, I'm Jeff Haber, and you're listening to No Bed of Roses.
1: No Bed of Roses is brought to you by Conexus. Maybe your company is creating video content, or you're a brand looking for that coveted direct connection with viewers. Maybe you're an established YouTube creator, or you're just starting out. Conexus Interactive Web Video Solutions enables viewers, while watching your videos, to simply tap on the items they're interested in, directly connecting them to the merchant's shopping cart to easily purchase those items. This all happens without ever leaving the video experience and without ever leaving the site where they started watching the video in the first place. Conexus shoppable video content works using any browser on any device. No download, no plugin, nothing to install. Interactive video like you've always wanted it. Find out more at Conexus.com. That's k e n x u s dot com.
0: Welcome back, everyone. Chef Chris Starkus is back joining us again for more adventures from his career, moving from the line of top Vegas restaurants to his first executive chef position. How would you like to be in the kitchen for Elaine Wynn's birthday party, cooking with the following chefs, Charlie Trotter, Wolfgang Puck, Daniel Balloude, Alessandra Strada, Nobu, Alan Ducas, Thomas Keller. No pressure there, right? Well, that was one night for Chef Chris. So, Here he is, Chef Chris Dargas. Your exec was counseling you to give up your second job because you and your buddy were burning out.
2: Correct. So, yeah, that was at Chinois. And, uh, yeah, we were pretty tired. I was working two jobs, like we said, and then uh, we quit, you know, both myself and and another colleague. we quit the jobs and then we basically just focused on one job and then went over to open post trio from Shinwa. So that was forum shops over at Caesars. And then we went into Venetian. was brand new. It was being built. It was open being built. We knew what we were going to do. And they started talking about everybody going over there. So I opened pantry station um, there. And the interesting part there was, you know, we were in like the canal shops, right? So there's like gondolas going through and you would still kind of look like you were outside. So we had, the cafe, which was kind of the outside part, which kind of had like those gate-like stuff, you know, kind of felt like you were outside, al fresco dining. And then inside was more fine dining. So we actually ran two menus, the cafe and the dining room menu. The dining room was only open in the evening, but you had to run both in the evening. And that's when I cooked. So we did lunch in the cafe. And then um, you would do dinner in the cafe and fine dining. So we would run two menus off of the same line and you had a line of you had pizza station which was generally one person pantry which is generally two people you had chef in the middle running the uh it was a mesquite grill and then you had one or two people on saute one or two people on pasta and then one person on pastry. So that was a straight line, no heat lamps, nothing like that. We put up the food, it, w- it would go. So there was never any heat lamps when I worked for Wolfgang Puck at all.
0: It just went into Correct. the window and hands right away and out into the dining room.
2: Yeah, I mean, you, it might sit there for a second as you're building tables and we're doing different picks, but this was back in the day where we had ticket machines. So pizza would have a ticket machine, pastry had a ticket machine, and then uh, the chef had a ticket machine that he doubled the tickets with with the expo, and then pasta and pastry had ticket machines. Now, even though you had ticket machines, they w- he would still give verbal calls. So when you were on saute, you were part of the grill station. That's where you know eventually I worked myself up to was you know started on pantry, worked over to. Pasta, you know, pasta one and two. So one would be like kind of like a mini expediter plating and number two would be doing all the pasta cooking and then saute, saute one and two would get verbal calls of up to 25 dishes for what your pick, we call it a pick, what your pickup was. So he would call out um, the orders to us. And you had to remember, depending on what station you were, you might have a ticket, or you might have to go off a verbal call um, based on the picks. And so I remember the first night we opened up, we did you know what they would call um, a soft opening, which was kind of like a friends and family type thing. And I remember we did fifty covers, and it felt like we did. 200.
0: 50 the hard because, way. It, yeah. yeah,
2: because no, you, no one knows anything. There's nothing driving, you know, opening a restaurant, especially with new personalities, new people, new functions, things like that. And, you know, what are we going to call each dish? You know, we had you know, if you have different crab dishes on and making sure print, you know, hey, if this thing's printing on pantry, I don't need to see what pasta is doing because we're going to verbal call to each other and make sure that we come up at the same time. And so um, we learned a lot of verbal communication there. Then as we opened up, I remember we would, next thing you know, we were doing 200 at lunch and then 500, 550 for dinner. We were balls to the walls. As soon as we opened up, it didn't take, it took maybe a week or two to kind of get going. But then, of course, the hotel opens up. It's the newest thing on the strip. Everyone wants to go there. So you have people coming in. And it's just packed. And that's what it was, is that you'd steal the spotlight from all the other casinos and, and restaurants um, at the time when you were the newest hotel because people wanted to come check it out and see what they had heard on the news. It just never, it never stopped
0: at and all. How, how so. long would that last? How long would that honeymoon period last, Chef? You mean how busy we were? Yeah, when you when wow. you when you Gosh. scale to two hundred at lunch and five hundred for and five hundred during the week you're doing, right? For dinners? Yeah. Is it? yeah and, and so weekends were touching seven? That would be
2: our max. We would you okay. know, it was yeah, five, five fifty. We you know if we were doing four and a quarter, we knew we could do more depending on how we were turning and is that three again,
0: is that three turns, two and a half turns for Yeah.
2: Uh, If I remember right, it was, we probably sat 250 with the cafe and the dining room inside and a couple bars, you know, a couple of bar seats there. So I was there for a number of years, I think two and a half years, and I worked my way through the line there and worked all the stations and, Saucier and and whatnot, and then I I eventually wanted to go in pastry. My friend and colleague uh, Kenny was one of the pastry chefs there, um, who worked under the the main pastry chef Christoph. I knew that I wanted to work in pastry because I was jumping around. I you know I, I did some pizza. I wasn't amazing at pizza, and and there was a lot of pizza guys that worked at Lupo, which was over at Mandalay Bay, and and they would work there in the morning for lunch, and then come work for us. And these guys were just they, they just crushed it on the pizza station so there's really you know it was kind of hard to get into that world like I would help out in between and roll out pizzas and but they're so fast and good at what they do. I would work pantry, work over, like I said, on pasta, one and two, saute one and two. Did a little bit of grill, but I was really interested in wanting to do, and that's where the chef worked. So that was kind of like in between periods of time. Like unless you were a chef, then you did not work the grill. And then I wanted to work pastry because I kind of learned all the other stations and, and wanted to keep challenging myself. And I remember at one night I it kind of came up with this idea and we were out having drinks with Kenny. And I said, Hey Kenny, I need I need to tell you that I want to work in pastry. And at this point in time, I was like their main guy. So like I could work any station. I didn't, I didn't ask for days off. I didn't go out to concerts. I didn't have necessarily a love interest at the time. I, I later on met my wife, who I'm still married to Diana now of, of 17 years
0: there. Let's not gloss over that. Shall we? Let's, <laughs> let's fully acknowledge the miracle of two people in the business meeting, marrying and yes. staying married
2: because she was in it for a little, a little bit. Um, She was, uh, she came in as a host and then wound up becoming a manager and she wound up leaving. So she was just kind of like, this is, we can't have both of us doing this. We were dating at the time. And the only reason I met, and this is where I think it's kind of interesting is that she only came to be a host. She's, she's absolutely just smart as a whip, you know, major in university and like two different majors and whatnot. So she was actually a flight attendant for national airlines, which was the owner Sheldon Adelson was of the Venetian owned that airline. And when 9-11, happened. None of her family wanted her to to be a flight attendant anymore. She took a host job when she was way overqualified and everyone asked her, like, why do you want to do this? She's like, I just need something to kind of see what I want to do, kind of set back. And that's the only reason I met her. I mean, I was at the restaurant all the time. So I didn't go out and go out and meet people. You know, there's no time, right? So that's the only reason I even met her. So, you know, the fact that that kind of serendipitously happened, that she picked the one restaurant in the One Hope hotel that I was working at all over the Strip, much less the world if you want to go out even macro versus the micro. But
0: how many openings do you think you've done in your career now? Postrio,
2: Alex, Kachina. So three, four, somewhere around
0: there. To have an operation that is systematic and just really finely tuned as anything under Wolfgang Puck, whatever the brand is, what was your experience in that build out for that line was the flow right, or did you find that this? Why is this to my? This needs to be my to my right and not here, but should be there. Were they still? Were they still finessing things, or was it really plug and play and just stepped in and go, man, this, this you know
2: works? What? I think honestly, it was as good as it could have been. You know, there's always something that changes. You know, like pastry was in the corner, and when I was in pastry, I, I we always wanted something bigger, or a better place to plate, or more racks. You know, so. As the menu develops, you're always like, well, the original menu, you kind of plan it off of that. And then as you find out what your sales mix are, you change it, things like that. So, I mean, it was pretty darn good. You know, of course, there's always little changes. There was enough room to plate stuff. You know, we had we had to bring up a little sauce well that was plugged in that wasn't on the line. But it made for easy cleaning, you know. So, you know, it was kind of catch 22 one way or the other. And it, gosh, we had two full walk-ins. We had a butcher room that was split between meat and seafood. And the butchers had in the front of that would actually butcher in the walk-in so all the food stayed cool, you know. So, you know, we had locker rooms and stuff, so they knew what they were doing 100%. But like I said, there was a couple things here and there, but overall it was great. And I think even through my career, I had pulled some aspects of that line into places that I was able to put my – my touch on. And, and, and one of them was a pass through window that we had from pasta to the back of the kitchen. And so there was like this pass through window that was probably four feet high and eight feet wide. Um, and I, I would work when we were really extremely busy, we'd call it the protein station. And in the back, because the grill was only so big, the chef would run out of room when you had so many, when you, they'd seat the room on you, you didn't have enough Enough room to put everything down, um, and so I ha- I would work twelve burners in the back facing the sorry the pasta cook who had six burners plus his or her uh, water. And uh, I remember the expo would would write down on a ticket kind of what the next pickup was. And he would tape it to his spoon and throw it through the window back to me because we didn't have a machine back there. Right. And that was and I would get stuff going. I'd start firing field shops and, and the longer stuff and then eventually hear the calls of what tickets were and then start firing fish. And so when we were extremely busy, like I was talking about before, like the computer electronics show, and they were just big tables, ten tops, thirteen tops. You know, you're putting tables together. That's what we would do. I'd, I'd work on a protein station and help just fire proteins so that they had time to rest. And then saute would fire just the garnishes and then plate everything.
0: The the communication system was taping your ticket onto a spoon and hauling it through the window. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little that's a little low tech. But that idea of okay, we're feeling the push right here, and we've got extra yep. burners, and just stuff is coming from the back the back kitchen right up to the main line.
2: And that and that kind of folds into what I what I was talking about earlier is just like I started I wanted to get into pastry and I was so you know valuable to them on the savory line because I knew all the stations. I remember going specifically to the chef because I remember having a drink with Kenny and I'm like, hey man, I want to go in pastry and he's like, I'd love to have you, man. It'd be great to have somebody like you learning pastry and just knowing the kitchen and stuff. So but he's like, I don't think they'll ever let you do it. I don't think they'll they'll let you do it. And at this point in time I'm like, I don't know, probably twenty or something like that. I didn't want to become a sous chef. You know, we had talked about it a little bit, but I just, I, I was too young to do that. And I didn't want to be stuck in like a sous chef position. I I wanted to be able to have a little bit of a latitude, not to just have to manage. Right. So I came in and I knew, you know, just like any restaurateur or whatever, you know, money, speaks right and so I think at the time I was making $14 an hour and so I came in I said hey chef can I talk to you it was like after shift and I said hey I want to work in pastry and what I will tell you is because you had annual reviews I said what I want to tell you though is I don't want to raise I just want to go into pastry because the knowledge of that is raise enough to me to learn it he was like Okay. Of course, he's like, "Cool, you have to train your replacement and all stuff." So I train my replacement, but then I would work in the mornings, and I would get off. You know, I'd work ten to six or even earlier. But what would happen was, as reservations would rise, I'd be trying to leave, and they'd be like, "Hey, Chris, we need you to work protein station, and I we're pretty busy. You know, we got." 300 on the books, you know, we know we're going to probably do 500. Can you stay? you know, get paid OT or whatever it was. And most of the time I did. So even though I was in pastry, I would still work that protein station or if there was a call and I'd work, you know, and help out and get them through the push and then go home.
0: How long do you stay in pastry?
2: Um, It was about a year. It was funny. I've always had a sweet tooth and I was like, cool. You know, I always go back there and grab some chocolate or something like that. Get through the day and, you know, savory and sweet are always like exchanging stuff. You do not
0: look like a pastry chef. Chef, let's just say (laughs) that for everybody who's listening. He's he's felt slender, fit, extra sexy. Not that pastry chefs aren't sexy, but they they tend to they tend to reflect the the uh, the station they're on. So, sure, sure. yeah.
2: And and I was even more skinny back then. So, you know, I did that for a year and, and you know, Kenny taught me chocolate work and candies and wedding cakes and making ice cream and plated desserts and banquets and all sorts of stuff. And then Did they have
0: a cold room for chocolate also there? Or
2: uh, no, we had we had a it was in the back corner of the room and we had a marble station, a table to work and we actually had like a gelato machine. It wasn't like an ice cream machine that you're used to seeing, and I'll tell you what, thats the only time in my life I ever worked with one of those, and it was amazing because it could hold, like, you know, the one, normally ice cream machines, like, they're like a quart at a time. This oh, thing they do, suck. The batch, yeah, they,
0: the batch freezers that just never work.
2: Right, and um, I had no idea that, like, this thing had antifreeze that went around the bottom. I, like, I was told how special it was, but I had no idea until I left there how special that was, and I, I yeah, I, I would love to have that in any kitchen I'm, I'm ever in moving forward, so that, that you know, with having the equipment and everything we had, we had a chocolate temperer, so we got one eventually because we made a lot of bonbons and candies and things like that did some sugar work for garnishes and pulled sugar sticks and things like that so i i really got a good base of what i wanted to know there and then you know it started you know this was back in the day when i was reading food arts and there was one that came out called sante that was out it was more you know beverage focused. and so I started reading about restaurants and then, you know, Art Culinaire, I got a subscription to Art Culinaire. I, I wanted to know what these fine dining restaurants were about. You know, I mean, Trio was, was still, you know, very high end, but still uh, high covers as well. You know, high volume. There was a restaurant called Renoir and that was Alexandra Strada, which was at Mirage. And that was when uh, Steve Wynn owned the Mirage. So back in the day, I made the transfer to go over there. So I went and I staged for I staged for two days.
1: We
0: so should because I, hey, you- I, I really I'm cutting you off here because we've said yeah. stage, we said stage right. in the previous yeah. episode. So we should explain so what a stage-, stage. Everyone sees stage when they read yeah. it. Is that's how it's spelled? But what's what's a stage, Chef?
2: You basically go and you work in a kitchen for free. Um, Sometimes you're seeking a job. Sometimes you're not. You're just there to get education and help out. And so I wanted to go over to Renoir and see what it was like because they were literally a they were closed Sunday, Monday, dinner only five days a week. You know, I think they sat. I want to say 70 or 90, but I mean, it was legitimately classic French fine dining. Alexander Strada had worked for Daniel uh, and Elaine uh, Ducasse when he was younger. Um It was five star, five diamond. At this time, Michelin had never been to Vegas. So I wanted to see what that type of food was, if I had the chops to work at that type of place. I mean, it's like the whole like 800 count linen. Chandeliers, there was actual four actual legitimate brinoises sitting on the walls, you know, that Steve Wendon is an art collection. So they were sitting in the dining room. So, opulent Christoffels, like silverware, you know, just everything, you know, Bernardo plates. You know, I went over there. I stodged for two days. I was kind of looking for a job, and but I was like, you know, wasn't sure if I was if I was there. And then by the end of the dime, the uh, chef de cuisine, Dan, um, was like, hey, man, you're asking all the right questions. We have a chef de partie open, which is just under a sous chef, but kind of a lead in the kitchen.
0: 70 seats, 75 seats, two turns for dinner? One and a half. One and a half. No pressure yeah. on this. And uh, right. f- uh, five courses, easy?
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah, we had a tasting menu. We did have all the carte, but mostly people came in for tastings, you know, sommelier, front waiter, back waiter. Captains, right. Uh-huh. Captains, yep, yeah, the whole yeah. deal.
0: Five days, dinner only. I mean, this is yeah. the this is the dream restaurant. 100%, at this level. What 100%. was what was the vibe? What was the flow? What was the difference between just the machine of post trio, that big volume, still executing on a high level, but that yeah, big yeah. volume. Yeah. What was that? Did could you feel that in the two days that you were there? Oh, I mean, was gotcha. it just yeah. night and day?
2: No, you had the time to be precise. You know what I mean? Like you, you didn't, you, yes, there was still stress because you're executing on a high level. You know, your your check average is much higher. Um, so your, the expectation's higher. The team was gelled a lot more. You know, you're going from seven days a week to where now there's a person on pantry, five days, and maybe, you know, you're working pizza two days. So the mise en place is different. Where now here you are, You're working on meat station, whatever it is. You're working that all five days. There's no one covering you. You, that's your job. You own that. Yeah, you, you own that. Yeah. And so because you have two days off. So again, mise and place is fresher. They're not carrying over. The team just gels a lot more. I remember there was this there was a chef in the morning and a prep cook that had worked for the chef for, you know, 13 or 14 years. Um, remember, I had worked for Wolfgang for a number of years. I think by the time I was in that post it was about five years, five and a half years I worked for them. But even at that, I saw a ton of turnover. And so going into a restaurant and seeing a team that had worked together for 10, 12, 15 years because uh, Alexander Strada came from Mary Elaine's down at the Phoenician um, in Arizona to come to Renoir. You know, he took his team from there and brought them to Vegas. That was some of the front of the house people too. So I thought, I thought not only is it the, the fine dining service that I wanted and read about, and wanted to know if I could be part of a team like that and execute on a high level. But also, there's got to be something to working for a chef for 15 years that he's treating his people right, you know, whatever that is. And so I was very curious. And so when they asked me about a job, I remember coming home and thinking, I was so loyal to my previous restaurants, but I realized that it was time for a change. And And Diana, my wife, was one of the The first people to really be like, you've done everything you can for this previous employer, you don't owe them anything. You said you'd open this. You said you'd do that. And I, I checked off all the boxes and it was about something new now, something that, you know, I did not, not that I wasn't proving to myself anymore, but like, I really wanted to do this And but it felt like, gosh, what, what if I got this, how, this is what I've always wanted. And can I get it? And so I sat down with Alex, you know, we talked about the wages and all that stuff. He hired me in, you know, essentially I started with him. I remember him saying, Hey, I want to let you know. My contract is up here in December. Steve Wynn is going to be building the Wynn Resort at the Desert Inn. He bought it. He's going to be selling everything to MGM, and I'm going to go over there Um, and open a restaurant, uh, a namesake restaurant called Alex. You know, I hope that you're going to work hard, but I want to let you know that we're done in December. And if you prove yourself, I'll bring you over there with Okay, well, I thought, well, hey, I have a job that has no end. And now I'm going to go to this other place and kind of gamble on myself, if you will, to make sure that I can go to that next round. Hope I I can work, you know, and prove to you that I'm worthy to go over the new restaurant because that would be amazing i jumped feet first and got right into it gelled with the team you know and and because like we talked about we were off sunday monday so we'd break down the kitchen on saturday night stay late go out saturday night maybe hang out sunday at the time i played a lot of golf we play golf on sunday or monday but everyone would hang out because you all had the same days off so that helped gel the kitchen oh my
0: god to build that we, team absolutely right?
2: and we talked about family meal right so yep. we all sit down and have family meal because <laughs> yep. you were dinner only. So this was that, th- that that time that I got to do all that and really see it and feel it. Now, you know, we did that. It was five star, five diamond, the whole deal. Next thing I know, because Steve Wynn had sold the MGM, you know, the long story short is we came in one day. It was in October. There was a note posted on the door basically saying, hey, there's a meeting. I think we all would go in at like 3, 3.30. So there was a meeting at, at 4. It was a mandatory meeting. And we were all kind of looking at Alex like, chef, because he was there all the time. We're like, chef, what's going on? He's like, I don't I don't know. Everybody's coming. We're ready for service that night. You have to remember, these are union houses as well. All these hotels are union at the time. This is the first union that I worked in because they were part of the hotel. Wolfgang leased their restaurant. So they were not union. Um, the culinary union in Las Vegas, for anybody doesn't know, is very strong. We went in, sat down, and basically union leaders came in and uh, then some of the vice presidents and presidents of MGM, because at this point in time, he had sold. They said, you guys are closed. You don't have service tonight. We're closing you down because MGM was about making money, as was Wolfgang, as any other restaurant. But this was more of a Steve Wynn Kind of this was something that he wanted to send his players to It was an amenity to people in the casino and his friends and celebrities and it true, wasn't a, about true, a true loss leader
0: right I mean Correct. Was, true, yeah. true mm-hmm. loss leader was yeah. about
2: being over the top to for the sake of being over the top
0: not only are you are you doing this these lower covers at this higher level but yep. then you're not sweating the p l. Y- nope. you just nope. you just go, hey, go out there and be great and don't yeah, worry be, about making money.
2: Yep, be the best, make <laughs> sure, you know, but the expectation is that you're gonna get all the awards, right? That's exactly what happened. And so, like I said, when I was there, we were renewed. It was uh, um, it was mobile, five-star, AAA, five-diamond, I believe if I have that right. So that was the thing, was we had all the plaques on the wall, the whole deal. Well, MGM comes in, they close us down. Basically, all of us are out of work in October, two months prior than what we had thought because mm-hmm. um, we thought we were going to close at the end of the year in December. Um, and at this point in time, we knew the wind wasn't opening till April. That's the interesting part here is that there was a gap of time here. And now all of us kind of sat around when they left. Alex looked at all of us and he said, I'm going to get every single one of you guys jobs and we'll get through this. He did exactly that. He got everybody jobs. At this point in time, I was engaged to Diana. Um, we had a honeymoon. We were going to Europe for six weeks and we were actually leaving February uh, 14th, we were leaving on Valentine's Day um, to fly to New York and then into Spain. And we were going to be in Spain, France, and Italy for six weeks. And Alex knew this because I was going to go eat at Elaine Ducasse's place in Monte Carlo, Louis Cannes. because he didn't want to get me a job in a kitchen because he basically was like, who's going to hire somebody for four months? Yes, maybe as a favor, but I didn't want to do that to somebody, right? He got me a caddy job at a place called Shadow Creek. It's like you're in the Carolinas, it has like an Augusta national feel, um, a completely private golf course. Originally, it was for players only that would, you know, gamble so much. And eventually they started charging $500 a round to play. Nice. And he got me a caddy job there. And, and everybody there knew. But again, as my background in golf, I could caddy, I could play. And so I got to caddy for a couple months out there and range attendant and, and know that I was just kind of biding my time before I went on my honeymoon. And then, you know, we were going to open – uh Alex at the uh wind resort in April.
0: Not a bad way to do it, I think.
2: No, <laughs> no, no, but you know what, you know it's easy to tell a story now, but there was a lot of question marks going sure. on there. And sure. so let, luckily at this point in time again, I knew Alex was gonna take me over there. You know, Diane and I take our trip, we go to, you know, Europe for six weeks. We backpack through, you know, this is when we didn't get a chance to go to El Bui, but this was when um you know, Fran and is doing all this stuff in and, and Spain and, and all that stuff. We we go through Cognac in Paris and we eat at Louis Cannes, Ducasse's place, and we're eating, you know, bed and breakfasts and checking how, out how, champagne. How was
0: Louis Cannes? How was that? I mean, it
2: was really good. It was really good. And I remember I remember uh, Alex telling me he worked in that kitchen when he worked for Elaine um, Ducasse. And he said, Hey, talk to the chef because he still knew the chef there, which is how we got the reservation to begin with. But he said, Go get a kitchen tour because that's exactly what Alex is going to look like, basically rough, you know, off of that kitchen. And so, sure enough, we did. We took a tour, and as soon as Alex was built, it was. It looked exactly is like that the. Is that, that the kitchen. classic
0: French kitchen? Yeah. Is it the kitchen out yeah. of Ratatouille? The classic brigade yeah. Yeah. kitchen. Yeah, I mean, you can, right? yeah, you can say that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was
2: similar to that. You got it. You know, they had you had three different lines going up to a front pass that was perpendicular. Where. You know, sous chefs and chefs plated everything and that were under, you know, golden lamps. Everything was put on uh, silver trays and and sent out. And the interesting part here is, you know, we were opening up. We were doing all we were doing all of our stuff before the hotel opened up. And just like we talked about the Venetian, the win was the next biggest thing. And and here we were opening a restaurant. Now, Alex, you know, he still said, hey, I need you to be five star, five diamond. And they knew Michelin was coming to town. Uh, Michelin talked about it at this point in time. Guy Savoie had opened his restaurant over at Caesars, and Robichon had opened the mansion and, and whatnot, and Ro, uh, Robichon over at MGM. There was two French chefs, very high level, ones that had stars before, and Alexander Strada's Italian. Those were the ones that um, everyone had their eye on for when Michelin came to town. We opened doors on April 5th, uh, 2005. The first day we were there, we opened up to, it was Elaine Wynn's birthday party. So we had 180 seats when it included our, our private dining room and stuff like that. So we could see 180. We did two different menus. They brought in 10 chefs. We had Wolfgang Puck, Paul Bocuse, Charlie Trotter, Danielle, Alexander Strada, Nobu, Thomas Keller, everybody I've ever read about in our kitchen. And this was our first day. So we had been practicing our menus that we knew we were going to open with. We were doing this menu the opening day. And then the next day we were going straight into a full service of regular menu opening. Here you go.
0: So hold so, on. You, you fed all those guys? Is that?
2: No, they, we were working with them in the kitchen. They created the menu for Elaine Wynn's birthday party. And we were doing a, a multi-course dinner with them in the kitchen. It was our crew. They all came in and we would help them do their courses, help them play. Some of them brought their sous chefs. And then we executed a, basically a birthday party dinner for Elaine Wynn in the, in the restaurant for, I think it was 110 people that night. Um, celebrities and all sorts of things like that.
0: That sounds to me like either a dream or the <laughs> ultimate cluster. I'm not sure which. What was it?
2: It was a dream because, of course, at that level, all those guys are amazing at what they do. Now, it was a cluster in terms of different egos, yeah. different level of <laughs> yeah. egos in there.
0: Yeah.
2: Um, oh, but, yeah. yeah, it was it was interesting. You know, Ducasse is there. And, of course, Danielle and Ducasse, knew Alex because he'd worked for him for so long. And, you know, most of them were... Really respectful, shake your hand, say thank you. You know, I've had nothing but, you know, good inner interactions with Thomas Keller over the years. You know, guys like that that are just like, look you in the eye. You know, we're just line cooks. You know, he's him who he is. And right. it was just an amazing experience and the way that he treated us. So that was our, our first night at Alex. And then the next day we were going into our menu. Now, the difference here is when we worked at Postrio, we had nine cooks plus a sous chef. At Renoir, 70 seats, we had six or seven plus, uh, you know, a chef. And so there's maybe 10 of us in the kitchen. Now over to Alex, bigger restaurant at the time with pastry and everything, we had close to 19 people in the kitchen for a dinner service. Again, it was about executing food on a high level it had nothing to do with P&L. There's no way you could have 19 people in a kitchen. And actually make money without paying somebody shift pay or something like that. So it was great to be and focus on your station to really execute on a high level. You know, we had a canapé station, which two people were on. We had pastry station, which pastry chef and two people were on at night. We had meat one, two, and three. Fish, one, two. Pasta, one, two. Cold apps, one, two. Hot apps, one, and two. You had a sous chefs in there as well. So all those people were in a kitchen to do 110, 120 covers five nights a week. It's crazy, right? That. So again, you're going from there. And then again, it was expected that we were going to go and do Michelin level stuff. You know, long story short, I was there for, I guess, almost two years. And in those two years, Michelin came to town. You know, Alex had, we had plenty of pre-shifts and he wanted to let us know. He told us before it all came out he said, look guys, I need to tell you, this is a three-star crew. And what you're doing and executing is three-star. Because when he worked for Alain Ducasse, he's seen that. But he said, I need to tell you that I'm not French. Therefore, we are not going to get three stars. So just know that's just the way how it goes down. And sure enough, later on that week, they released the results. Guy Savoy, three. Joe Robichon three. Alex,
0: two. Yeah. That's the old school way, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah. And he isn't he half, is he half Italian, half French? What is, is he? He has some French, son? yeah. He has some French in
2: him, but but um, it is not
0: enough, Monami. Nah, it is yeah. not enough. Yeah.
2: You know, we were a little heartbroken, but we, you know, the team that we had, you know, we really gelled and and we loved what we were doing. You know, again, I loved working for Alex. He was a he was a great chef, mentor, treated people with the utmost respect, and it, and it really. After, again, a number of years, I worked for him for five years as well. I knew why people stayed with him for 15 years.
0: It's saying so much in mm-hmm. uh, in an industry where, as you said, you just have so much churn. I'm just looking. He took over Scarpetta from Scott Conant. It's saying so much, even even in the ideal conditions that you guys enjoyed with that very labor-heavy roster that you had.
2: You know, we ran like a 40% food cost. And and that kind of, that, like I said, kind of rolls into... Where I was at, too, was I just kind of thought, I know this is awesome, and it is amazing, and I didn't I had done it for, you know, worked with Alex for about five years or four years at that point in time. He was going to be taking over a Trattoria in the Wynn Hotel that was more, again, at this point in time, it's still Chef de partie I'm not a sous chef or anything like that. I wanted to become a sous chef. I wanted to understand the numbers, and I wanted to understand what that was all about. Well, I told him, hey, I want to... I want to go over to the name of the restaurant was called Corsa at the time. And he was going to be rebranding it, and opening it his trattoria, so more cafe style food um, as strada. I said, great. I want to go go over there. So he he brought me in as a sous chef. Um, I worked there, helped rebrand the restaurant, reopen the restaurant. I worked as a sous chef there, then as a chef de cuisine for him as well. Um, at the time, his chef that had been around for a while, Dan, was the executive chef there. Eventually, he had left. I was chef de cuisine, and that was something that was eye opening in terms of understanding. Because I, I wanted to know how to make money. Because I thought, well, this is all great. This is all great resume builder and everything. And this was exactly what I wanted. But I knew that if I was going to go out on the open market, that I could make money from amazing food was what investors and people were really going to want from me as a chef. You know, there's only so many chefs out there that can just open a place for their art, and you know, for whatever reason, just do their art, not make a lot of money, and and do the you know, the art culinary food that you see if you're reading art culinary and that most people want to do, but don't realize what the business is behind it. And so I, I wanted to know that balance.
0: Yeah. And that's a great point. And uh, when you mentioned 40% food cost, you know, I had a a twinge, a pang. It just, anybody, Mm -hmm. for anybody who's listening, that is something that no restaurant, no normal, I would say 97% of the restaurants in the world cannot run the lights will go out in in 2 in 2 days. So Correct. that's a luxury that most operations will never will never have and it's fantastic that you you had that window but your takeaway as you said was hey, I want to see how you can do this at this level and make money. This is yep. this is the the holy grail. How do you do that? When chef do you make that move? When does it happen that you get to become an executive chef?
2: I Wound up being a private chef for a family for two years, and that's what got me up to Portland, Oregon. We had looked in San Francisco, things like that. I actually did a stage out and um, for Douglas Keene at Cyrus when he was out there to see what that was going to be like. Didn't get, I didn't make those choices and wound up going and be a private chef for this family. And so I did that for two years. Um, that's what got us into portland and then when i left them is when i started to go and work for urban farmer in portland oregon i did a tasting and this is the interesting part and this is why i tell people never to burn bridges in the industry or any place they are was that i had applied to a lot of positions portland's a much smaller market than what there's a lot of more chef-owned places up there not as many like restaurant big conglomerate companies and so i had heard about the Nines hotel and urban farmer um i had Applied there, never heard anything back. Through, you know, a social network, the runner that was the main expediter for Wolfgang Puck was married to the pastry chef for Urban Farmer. And we were good friends and we knew that they had left there, left Vegas to go work in Oregon, but didn't know where. So when I found out through John that his wife was the pastry chef, she knew they were looking for a chef de cuisine. And that's actually how I got the interview was because she had given my resume to the executive chef directly, even though I had applied online, did a tasting and wound up getting the chef de cuisine job there under um, the executive chef, Matt, who was there, had been there, gosh, six or seven years before I got there. That was one of the first starts there at the Urban Farmer in Portland. And then after about two years, maybe it was four years there went to be executive chef here in Denver for Urban Farmer Denver, opening that restaurant.
0: Urban Farmer Denver, your first stop as executive chef and opening exec.
2: I had been chef de cuisine. I actually did a stint with Rick Moonen um, in Mandalay Bay as well, between the private chef and Urban Farmer Portland thing for about a year and a half as um, executive chef there. Then yes, over to um, Urban Farmer Denver. So yes, that that was the first time Um, but again, I've been right, right there for a number of years. So it wasn't too much of a jump to become that it was just the right opening. Um, and I was actually telling this story today where I wanted to go, I wanted to grow, but I wanted to do the food that I wanted to do. And I remember doing a tasting. I had been again at the chef de cuisine at urban farmer Portland for four years. And so most of the corporate people had seen my food, but they still wanted me to do a tasting, which I kind of was like, really? I thought, well, they know me, but then I thought, you know what, this is a really good opportunity to do you know, the really strong farm to table cuisine that I wanted to do. And so I worked on a menu of five courses and executed it actually at the corner office for the corporate team for about 10 or 12 people. I thought I'm going to do the food that I want to do. That was a little bit different than the classic urban farmer food that had been done at this point in time. There was the one in Portland, Cleveland, and Philadelphia. So there was already three open up. Um, But I didn't want to just go in and do straight steakhouse cuisine. I wanted to do something a little bit different. I did that tasting and I thought, well, if they hate it, then I know this isn't the place for me. But if they love it, then this is exactly where I want to be. They did love it. And, um, you know, I was able to get the position there, opening team. And a lot of my cooks and sous chefs that I worked with in the Portland one, I told them, hey, you want to come to Denver with me? Let's do this. And a lot of them said yes. And that's how we got this great team to to come down to Denver and really, again, we knew each other. I knew what building great teams, how much of how much value that brought, especially coming from Alexander Strada, um, and it really helped the opening of the restaurant be what I wanted it to be and what everybody else wanted it to be. So yes, it was stressful, but it wasn't as you know knocked down crazy as it had been in the past.
0: How much input did you have into the design of your new kitchen?
2: Actually, a decent amount. You know, some of it was moving forward already before I got on board. But, you know, one of the main features that I um, like about Urban Farmer here in Denver, if nobody's been there, is that you can see there's a door and there's windows into the kitchen. I remember the original plan was to put walls there. And I thought... You know, it's so often I had worked in kitchens where there was no windows at all and when you have daylight coming into your kitchen, it changes so much about what you're doing there, how you feel about it. There's a connection about what's going on outside, a connection to people. I had I had worked in open, you know, kitchens in terms of out to the dining room but not necessarily out to outside or anything like that. I really wanted it to stay with the windows and I, and, and we designed it around that. That was one of the major design elements as well as designing in the micro shelves and things like that into, um, you know, we had micros and then having the mushrooms down in the basement, down by the restrooms, you know, those were some elements that I wanted, you know, to bring the, a lot of the kitchen and the farm table elements into the dining room because I didn't want it to just be like plates or like plants, sorry, that are there that nobody ever uses. You know, I wanted it to, to, see people coming in the dining room and pulling micros for garnishes and things like that. So the the guests could see us using these things and that it was really a through line to what the cuisine was. And so we were able to build some of those elements in and the window, especially in the kitchen was huge. People would come and watch us cook and stand out there with their kids and um, whether they were dining in the restaurant or not, it was a huge, huge part of of the design I felt and I really enjoyed that part of it while I was there.
0: Of course, it's going to make the kitchen team be a little more on point because yep. they've got a public audience, right? I mean yep. everybody's yep. seeing into the back of the house, which people don't normally. You might see through the pass a little bit. Correct. But right. here you literally had a window on the world on what was going on back there. And yeah, it was a it was an impressive kitchen. It was busy.
2: Yeah, it was busy, you know, and it was always cognizant to work as clean as you could because you didn't want, you know, you didn't want people looking at dirty floors or dirty towels, things like that. So it was a different element to the culture of the kitchen. When you don't see your guests, even though you know you're cooking for people, unless you see those people, you kind of lose that, especially as a cook, when you're just turning out covers, you forget that you're actually cooking for people that are going to eat the food in front of you, you kind of get disconnected a little bit that way. And so it was a reminder to know and understand that you are cooking for people that are going to eat this. So please take your time and focus on seasoning it properly, executing it well. Even though I'm looking at you straight through the window, telling you to hurry up. Right. 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 So there, there's always that nuance of like, I know I'm looking at you and you told me four minutes. I'm telling you I needed a minute, but I still need it to look and taste like it took you four minutes. So let's go. You know what I mean? Like, magic.
0: That's, yeah. that's, that's, that's. <laughs> That's the magic. Somehow mm-hmm. we changed physics in the kitchen. I wanted to jump back to Alex for a second because we sure. were talking a lot about the back, but so much of the experience is about what happens in the front. Can you just give us a minute or two on just your thoughts of the team? I don't know who the GM was yeah. there, or yeah. what you thought of the front of the house team there.
2: I mean, they were they were epic. I mean, they were they were the best at what they did. And that was the one thing that Alex would always say. He'd say, hey, come in and eat dinner. You know, I mean, obviously... We weren't paying the price of what it would cost to be in there, but it was about understanding the experience on the other side so that you knew in the kitchen what it felt like, you know how things were plated, how was it easy to eat when you were sitting in the dining room with a suit on because you had to have a suit on, suit and tie, and what it was like. So he would invite us in. Any one of us is welcome to come in, and we, we did. I think I came in and dined there two, three times in the years I was there for birthdays and things like that, anniversaries or whatnot. So they were special occasions. But then you really got to see the team do what they do. And, you know, with the team service and the group, you know, dropping, you know, synchronized uh, drops. Thank you. Synchronized yeah. drops. You know, we had a master sommelier on staff. Everybody had at least a level one or level two um, wine knowledge. And, of course, seeing him do his work and how he poured wines. And then we had a, an elite cocktail uh, team as well. And so we had rectangular silver trays, custom Bernardo, And the way that they dropped and how seamless they worked and how quiet they worked and how their deep knowledge of the menu and all the ingredients. We did so much training on the menus from the back of the house to the front and they had to be tested as well. And so because of that, all that shone through when you came in on the front. And so I saw that and they were amazing. They were some of the best servers I've ever worked with um, in terms of that t- style of service. It was a great experience. And again, to see that, and that's why even in the first part our part one, where I talk about understanding hospitality of my time in Vegas, It was one of the best places for that reason. I was working at one of the elite restaurants, not only in Vegas, but in the world for the Michelin rating. And to see the style style of service be at its best when you know people that come in and know their their drinks, know what they eat, you know their likes. You don't have to ask the questions, it's very seamless. That's really what a professional in the front and back of the house does and knows. And that's really the difference between someone who's just doing it for a living and somebody that's doing it for a career and a profession.
0: At those prices, you could have people who are doing it as a career. It was sustainable, and that's the challenge, of course, that we all face now with most of the operations in today's modern restaurant business. That it is a tough road to hoe to make that pencil out and pay everybody a living wage. Yeah, it's alchemy. <laughs> that's that, that that's magic, also. And as soon as somebody figures all of it out, I'd love to. I'd love to hear it because I've spent a good portion of my life chasing that, and it is elusive. When I hear stories like the one you shared with us just now about it being subsidized. Soon as the money guys came in, that subsidy was over. That's it, yep. lights out, yep. right? MGM yep. came in, and said the accounts looked at the P and L, said no freaking way, this is gone. Yep. We'll put yep. it in a food court,
2: hundred percent. And that's the thing is, like we know about the pandemic and all that, and what it's done to the industry. But I really hope that what comes out of this is a change to you know the disparity between front and back, and really what livable wages is, and that that's the new that should be the new design of a restaurant to be sustainable, not only financially as well. You know what I mean? Like, again, like you said, what does that algorithm look like? I don't know, but it seems like in order to continue to maintain the industry and keep it healthy, there has to be somebody working on that to be the right thing. And like you said, you can't look at old models of profit and look at the future, you know, if you're going to actually pay what you need to pay. And I think that at the higher echelons of the restaurants, they do that, but not at every place. No way.
0: No, and if they do it at those higher end restaurants, again they're they're either so expensive that is just for the lucky few, right? Or they're usually they're being subsidized somehow, and that's why Vegas can do what Vegas can do. The the, the gambling the gambling floors are subsidizing that. How we all make it work is, is a challenge. And I'm going to say, Chef, that I feel like there's a part three coming. I feel like we, cause we didn't touch yeah. on sustainability here. We got no. to, we got to you getting to urban farmers exec, but yep. this is really, this is an important one. And I think it goes from, for my money, I think it goes all the way to the, the farmer and the hands in the field bringing in the crops. Yep. Animal husbandry and how, how do we in the entire, in the entire value chain, how do we make it work so that when that plate hits the table and then that guest gets that check, that everybody does feel that there's value, that everybody has been paid appropriately and everybody can go home and take care of their, their families and come back tomorrow and put in another great day. How we get there is going to require a lot of
2: thinking. Agree. And I think that, you know, again, we'll touch on it, like you said, in a a part three would be, you know, I think we did a lot as much as we could at Urban Farmer in that respect. I have a lot to say on that topic of how it it could be done, but it's tough. It's not cheap you know food's, food real food's not cheap and that's the thing is that we're as a culture we're used to some foods being cheap and then not understanding the difference between cheap food and food that's well produced by people that know what they're doing and why there are certain things that run higher in price and others, just in general. I mean, you know, most of us could figure that out. But when you're going into a restaurant, why is a McDonald's burger the cost that it is? And now you go into Urban Farmer, and I'm charging you seventeen dollars
0: for a burger. No question. And here's the big thing. And there's there's a lot to this, and we we probably yeah. need whiteboards for it. But. Yep. Is there a case for you? You look at McDonald's, greatest fries in the world, no argument. But, uh, but you look at McDonald's chef and you say, is there, what is the social cost of having a portion of the population ingesting this food? What does that do to our healthcare system, to the development of our children? to even social discourse, how people are experiencing a meal. I mean, there's so many touch points here. Yeah. And again, this is, this is just teasing out some stuff for the next, this next episode, but it's a very, very big and complex conversation.
2: For me, food is medicine, right? And so if you look at what you're spending for prescriptions and all the other stuff to effectively subsidize eating habits, say at McDonald's or something like that, if you even it all out and just eat great food, it probably costs the same to eat well nourishing food and not have to supplement it by, go, you know, supplementing cheap food by going and getting pills to figure out if you're huh. diabetic or not. And I know there's, there's a lot there. That's just because people are eating certain things doesn't mean it's leading to all their their medical stuff. But that is where I came from as a chef of like, Hey, eating, you know, food that is nutritious in its own, whether it's meat, vegetables or whatever, that could be a a food as medicine type of thing.
0: Is that not the ultimate wellness program? Uh, Ideally? Yeah. 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 I mean, so do you get from your insurance company? Is there a stipend? Eat well, take care of yourself, stay out of the doctor's office. Of course, the pharma companies are going to have a coronary (laughs) <laughs> uh, but they've got plenty of heart medication. So if they have heart yeah, coronary, they can good. self-medicate. That's It'll good. be fine. Yep. But pharma get immunities, again, a complex, a complex web. It is a conversation that the pandemic has accelerated. It yes. has to happen. Chef Chris Starkis, thank you again so much for a wonderful conversation and a tour through that second chapter in your career. I know there are many more chapters, but I really do appreciate your time and love talking with you. So thank you.
2: Thank you. And vice versa. Thanks for having me on. And uh, thanks for, for, uh, yeah, listening to, yeah all those, all, all those stories are kind of nice to, nice to remember actually going way back like that. So thank you. And I look forward to the third, third part.
0: Just great stories from chef Chris Starkus once again. How about that night for Elaine Wynn's birthday party? I know I started with that in the intro, but man, that's a lot of pressure, a lot of talent in that kitchen. Chris has gone on to teaching now, and one of his big passions is sustainability. And that's that's going to be our next visit, something that I'm also really interested in and is a big conversation for many of us to have. So hopefully you'll come back and join us and hopefully you'll enjoy today. So until next time, stay safe. And remember, you will find no bed of roses wherever you find fine podcasts. See you soon.